Hey, what's going on? Jason Bay here. You're listening to Blissful Prospecting. And today we're talking to Howard Brown, founder and CEO at Revenue.io about psychology, communications, and the future of conversational intelligence. Let's get to the episode. Super excited for you to listen to this one. If this is your first time listening to Blissful Prospecting, uh, this is a podcast where I help reps and sales teams turn complete strangers into paying customers. So I look at Outbound as a game of odds. And right now, and this is what I see across my work as well, according to Clearbit, you have a 1% chance of getting a reply to a cold email and about a 1.48% chance, according to Gong, to get a positive result from your cold call. And I don't know about you, I don't really like those odds. So when I look at outbound, I think of it as a game of odds and probability and how do we increase our odds of getting a more favorable response. And what we're going to be talking to Howard today, um, I love that he's a clinical psychologist, by the way. And if you've listened to my show, you know I'm very big into psychology and therapy and that sort of thing. But we're really going to dig into... Uh, a couple of things. This conversation went in a couple of different ways. One, we talk about the relationship that we have with others and the relationships that we have with ourselves. So our interpersonal relationships with others and our intrapersonal relationships with ourselves and how that affects our sales results. So in other words, how you think about yourself and how you manage the relationship with yourself. We talk about attachment styles. We talk about how he got into sales um, how he got into psychology, how he became a founder of several companies. We also talk about how to connect the dots to find out what motivates you. And we kind of connected this to fear and anxiety and sort of the narrative that you tell yourself. And um, we spend a lot of time talking about anxiety. It's something that he talks a lot about as well. And And honestly, this is just a super fun podcast for me because... I got to pick someone's brain that's way more educated on the topics of psychology, <laughs> you know, than I am. So I'm super excited for you to listen to this. Before we get to the episode and the interview today, I got a quick favor. If you could, if you're listening to this uh, podcast on Spotify, if you could, there's a way on the app when you open up the podcast on the Blissful Prospecting page where you can give it a rating. I'd appreciate a short, uh, you actually don't need, need to write a review. I don't even think it lets you. If you, if you leave us an honest rating of what you think, I'd really appreciate it. It just helps get this show in front of more people like yourself. So let's get to the episode. So uh, we were talking before we hit record, just you know, sort of how interesting your background is, but how did you get into, like where did the interest in psychology start with? You know, where did that start from? Were you like a little kid thinking about this stuff? Was it something that you kind of stumbled into on accident? What's the what's the backstory? Boy, it's uh, I'm certainly asked quite a bit about that. So. I actually grew up here uh, in Los Angeles. My father was mayor of Beverly Hills. Um, I, I, a lot of people ask me, how did I get into sales? Well, I think about my first sales job was actually walking door to door with my dad when I was eight years old. He dressed me up in a suit and we walked door to door, um, basically introducing ourselves. And I'd introduce my dad as a candidate for mayor. And I'd tell them how beautiful their house was and I'd connect with people that way. And I really went to school and I, and, and I studied political science and I, and I came out of school and I became a campaign manager, a speech writer. Um, I was highly involved in local LA politics and um, I really enjoyed that for a time. And then I realized that a lot of politics and campaigns and, and that sort of thing is paid for by real estate and uh, development and real, real estate entitlement. And so there was lobbying involved and, um, and I got involved in that. And I started my career in real estate and started building out a really nice network and uh, portfolio of real estate, which was great. Um, had a beautiful house in Venice. I was successful by all measures, um, but I was miserable. I remember being 25 years old and looking in the mirror and just not happy with who I had become because I had really followed in my father's footsteps. I was in politics, I was in real estate, but I didn't really know who I was or what was really important to me. I was volunteering um, at a homeless shelter for, uh, 
for people who had dual diagnosis and mental health disorder as well as addiction. And I was, um, I always really enjoyed that work. And, and my buddy who was studying clinical psychology at the time, he was also volunteering there. He said to me, you know what? You're really great at talking, connecting with people. I'm going through this program to gain my master's in clinical psych. Why don't you join me? It's a night school thing. And I did and uh, did a three-year program, earned my master's, fell in love with helping people. And, uh, you know, in California, you have to earn 3,000 uh, supervised hours to earn your license. Did that, worked at a uh, drug and alcohol treatment center, worked with uh, women who were domestically, who had domestic violence. Um, I met my wife, who was also volunteering, and just fell in love with helping people and, and solving really difficult problems. And so that's, that's sort of how I started in psychology. Man, we could take that in like a hundred different directions. At least. <laughs> but there's a lot there. Um, did you, did you learn anything about yourself as you started to study psychology that made you look at yourself a bit differently? Anything like that? Yeah. I mean, look, I think, I think I was going through my first midlife crisis at 25 years old, because again, I sort of stared in the mirror and just, I didn't like who I was. Like, you have to wake up, you have to feel good and passionate. And I got into therapy myself. I found a great therapist. Part of the program I was involved with, with um, required you to have a therapist as you were going through school. And yeah, I, I did a tremendous amount of work on myself. Um, I'm a lifelong fan and advocate of therapy. I've been, uh, I've been in therapy probably 28 years, and I still have a license in clinical psych. I'm actually still a marriage and family therapist. You have mm -hmm. to maintain that by continuing education. I think the ability to be a great therapist and connect well with others requires a deep understanding of yourself. And so you'll see a lot of therapists who are in fact wounded healers, meaning they've suffered a lot of trauma. They get into helping other people, but they don't really deal with their underlying issues. So in, a, in an attempt to deal with their own stuff, they go to help other people, but they still have the underlying trauma. And I feel the best therapists out there are ones that have evolved to a point where they're dealing with their own stuff so that they can connect with their clients. They can, um, rather than project their own stuff on a, on a client, they're able to understand where they are and where the client is and where that divide is. And that is super important so that you don't project your stuff onto your clients. Just like as a salesperson, if you connect with your prospect and you call them up and you pretend like you know exactly what they're going through and you, you know, hey, I talked to sales leaders and I know exactly what you're going through. No, that's projection. That's fake empathy. Empathy is truly understanding what someone is going through. And the only way to do that is by asking deep, open-ended questions and doing listening and then mirroring back and focusing and growing. And so that's where the connection of psychology and true sales, I believe, is just a natural fit. Oh man, okay. So again, there's like some big broad topics. We might tackle this conversation actually a little bit differently than I was thinking, but I think that there's, let's spend some time on the empathy piece. And what I also wanna talk about, I think that's kind of interesting too, is that, I mean, it sounds like you've been on this 28 year long journey. I haven't been going to therapy as long as you. I'm a, about, about two or three years. And there's kind of an interesting thing that happens where you start to piece together the puzzle of your life and you start to figure out why you are the way that you are. Um, if we could focus on that part first, and then I want to kind of circle back to the empathy thing. When you think about like the salespeople and the sales leaders that you've worked with, do you get the sense that a lot of them understand like why they are the way that they are right now and why they might have certain habits or tendencies, especially the ones that you know, kind of get in the way? Do many of these folks like connect those dots? Is that something you help the people that work for you with? Like any of that kind of stuff? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I think I try and surround myself with people who are interested in um, 
looking at their blind spots of, of exploring within, of connecting with people on, on uh, more than just superficial level. I think the best leaders are also great coaches, meaning they don't treat everybody the same. They look at the individual, they try and connect with that individual's strength and weaknesses. Um, they focus on that individual strength and in areas that they can add value. In order to do that, I believe that it requires that you really take a look at yourself, understand what motivates you, what matters. If you're disconnected from, from your own emotions and from the things that motivate you, it's really hard to connect with others and really understand what they're going through so that you can actually be both compassionate and empathetic because we all, right, at, at our core, we're all the same, right? We want recognition, we want love, we wanna be understood. And in order to understand other people, it's important to understand what are those motivating factors that you have? Where are your blind spots? So I don't know if I directly answered your question. I think it's a mix. I think some people are highly evolved. They're constantly working on themselves. I think others are not. Some people have been able to find ways that they can be successful without it. I think that's great. Yeah. I choose to surround myself with people who are constantly striving to be better in every single way. And I think when you form groups like that, when you have an organization like that, they outperform others. No, definitely. With the, when you said disconnected from your emotions, it's something I relate with a lot because the very first therapy session I had with uh, Dr. Gregory was, <laughs> it was interesting because I always, I figured out that I kind of muted my emotions for most of my life, where the kind of environment that I was raised in with my dad, especially was one of, you know, be humble, be quiet, don't draw attention to yourself, you know, that kind of thing. So what that made me really, and I saw how he would interact with other people, you know, that did draw that type of attention to themselves and what it made me do was really kind of mute the highs and the lows. So I never really expressed sadness or loneliness or anything like that. And when things went really well, I never got overly excited about it. And I just got into this decades long habit of not really paying too close attention to how I felt. So I was actually not able to identify simple things like, Hey, am I feeling shame right now? Um, if I'm feeling anxious, like, you know, why am I feeling lonely, sad, whatever it might be. I wasn't really able to pinpoint some of those things. And what I've found in the work that I do now is I think there's a lot of people actually that are, that are like that, that aren't for whatever reason, it's just not a skill that they have or that they've kind of muted. Do you have any advice for someone, you know, especially a sales leader too, that's thinking about like, I want to empathize with my team more. I want to connect with them, but this is just not a, like a muscle that I've really flexed much. How would you, you suggest someone kind of starts to exercise that muscle and get some awareness around like what they're actually feeling so they can connect with like what other people are feeling? Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of different ways. I don't think there's any single way, but to your point, you've made breakthroughs in therapy by connecting with a therapist that has guided you through that process, right? There's yeah. a reason we don't allow ourselves to experience the emotions or connect with sadness or fear. It's because we're afraid it will overtake us, right? Those emotions will be so powerful that we won't know what to do. So we create a bunch of distractions. It may be alcoholism, it may be drugs, it may be, we may throw ourselves into our work, whatever it is, we've created a very, in a lot of cases, a shell around ourselves to protect us from that thing. So rather than just, you know, I'm suddenly going to feel emotions and I'm going to dig in, I think finding listening to podcasts like this, listening to other podcasts that talk about emotional connection, emotional IQ, listening to, there's a lot of great podcasts of therapists out there. Um, I, think, I think making the commitment to wanting to improve, to look at oneself, because I think about, when you think about your life, we all tell ourselves a narrative. Here's the narrative of my life. It's a story. But because the way we think, we cannot think about the entire narrative. So what we typically do is we'll take almost like screenshots at different parts of our life and we'll weave those together and that's the story of our life. Well, you find people who are highly depressed 
tend to take screenshots of those parts of their life that are the lowest points. They weave those all together and life is horrible, right? That's the narrative of their life and they see their life and others through those lenses. It's important to actually, okay, let's observe other parts of our lives, times where we li did live up to our own expectations, times where we felt good, times where we were able to connect and start weaving those pieces together to tell a different narrative of who and what we are. And I think it's super powerful. So you may not have to get into therapy and fully jump into it, but start to really evaluate how you think about yourself and the story you tell others and the story you tell yourself. That makes sense? Oh, it makes a lot of sense. I, uh, the narrative that you tell yourself is something I talk a lot about with call reluctance, <laughs> you know, because the thing that people come into with call reluctance is I kind of take them through this framework. I don't know what it's called. I've heard, seen it called pattern interruption, but more like interrupting your own pattern. And it's, uh, identify the pattern, um, pinpoint the trigger, derail and replace, and then make a habit. And the identify the pattern part's pretty easy for them. I don't make as many calls as I should because I'm too afraid to do it, <laughs> you know, because something else comes up, whatever. When I ask them to really pinpoint the trigger, they go into this narrative that sounds like this. Oh, well, I was on Howard's LinkedIn profile and I saw him and he, I don't know, he looks like a really busy, important guy. Why would he want to talk to me? Or I noticed that so-and-so has 20 years of experience in their position. I'm two years into this job. What could they possibly learn from talking to me? Or something I do a lot too is this person looks really serious on their LinkedIn profile. They look like they would be a total jerk to me yeah. if they picked up the phone, you know? Course, yeah. um, do you have any, so the narrative thing, I, I, it makes a lot of sense. Like with call reluctance, is that something you've explored at all or talked to reps about at all? Or, or is there any other way that maybe people should think about stuff like when they're prospecting and they're, and they start to tell themselves these, these types of narratives, any, anything that you recommend that someone like that do? Well, yes, absolutely. I think it's, you gave examples of the type of things that we may tell ourselves. This person looks serious. They could be mean. Uh, they look busy. So there's a fear there, right? Mm -hmm. What is the actual fear that you'll be rejected? That the person will be rude to you? And why does that matter? How will that impact you? So if I call this person and they're rude, what does that say about me? Do I evaluate my self-worth based on what other people think of me or whether or not they give me the time of day? How, do I, how does that impact my self-esteem or how I think about who I am? And so I think taking it just a step deeper to say, okay, what does that? Why does that matter? What does it matter that this person on LinkedIn that I'm connecting with, because I truly believe that my product or service will benefit them and their organization. The product or service that I am selling will help them have a better version of themselves because it will provide them more efficiency, uh, more time, you know, better productivity, whatever it is. If I believe in what I'm selling, right? If I believe in it and I know it can help them, why do I care that they reject me? It's not about me, it's about them at that point. And so my job is to continue to try and find people that I can benefit through my solution. Because remember, sales is about helping people. If you're trying to go after people that can't see the benefit or utilize the benefit of what you offer, you're targeting the wrong people. So let's start there. Let's make sure we're contacting people that actually can benefit and then step in with confidence that, look, I'm here to help. I'm here to provide a service. I'm here to connect them with something that will help them. If you take the, I'm a sales guy and I'm just, you know, calling down a list to, I'm going to provide value to this person because I believe in the product and the company, that's a reframe. But if you're working for a company and you don't believe in what they sell or what you're doing, maybe it's time to look at yourself and maybe it's time to find another job. Yeah. What I'm hearing from you is a lot of it's your self-identity, I guess, yeah. like how you, how you feel about what you're doing and is there a bigger purpose, you know, to what you're doing. Um, ah, that's so interesting. I always call it drinking the company Kool-Aid is, 
it's like, do you drink the company Kool-Aid? Do you really believe in, you know, what you guys do and what you stand for and the work that you do for clients, you know? Um, Okay. So you mentioned fear and we've talked about fear a bit. How do you think about fear and, you know, kind of just managing fear in general? Because I, I think this applies not only to, you know, cold calling or prospecting, but just throughout the sales process. Um, I mean, there's just so many instances that come up where people are too fearful to just ask for what they want even. And you talked about the rejection piece. Is there any other way that you or that we should be thinking about fear or how to manage it? And where I'm kind of going with this is, is it, is it about getting rid of the fear? Is it about thinking about how to deal with it? Like, how do you, how do you think about fear? I, I think the fact that we're talking about fear is, is a positive thing where I'm, I'm on a blissful prospecting um, <laughs> podcast here talking about fear, right? So it means we're making progress. And the reason we're able to talk about fear is because we all have it. We all have fear each and every single one of us. It's a natural instinct. It's part of our anatomy. It's part of our brain science, who we are, right? Understanding what triggers fear and why is where the work is, right? What triggers my fear? What does it say about me is really super important. Recognizing that, Jason, you feel fear. I feel fear. My cohorts feel fear. I talk to CEOs all the time and founders and and VCs and private equity uh, partners. And I talk to all sorts of folks. And you know what? Every one of them has fear. We all have fear. Understanding that it's what makes us human is critically important. And accepting that, understanding when it comes up, trying to understand why it comes up, and then using that as a superpower. I feel fear. I'm going to break through it. Because it's really empowering when you have that fear and you know it's something and it's an old pattern and then you break it. And you're like, yes, I worked through that. I remember when I was younger, I used to have a recurring dream. It was a nightmare where somebody was chasing me. They were constantly, somebody was chasing me. They were going to get me. And I remember the day that I had that dream. I turned around and I kicked whatever this monster was. I literally like, I don't know if I'm like the MMA superstar, but I did some kind of crazy kick. That was it, right? So every time I had that dream after that fact, I was able to do this kick and it was incredibly powerful. I ended up, I stopped having that recurring nightmare, but it was empowering because I overcame that fear. And I think that same thing happens in life when we're able to recognize the fear, find ways to push through it, it's empowering and it helps us grow as individuals. Yeah, it's almost like a muscle, you know, so to speak. Like the more you do things that scare you, the easier it becomes to do things that scare you. 100. Let's talk about one of your fears. What's a fear you overcame? Oh, shit. Well, there's a lot of personal ones. Um, oh, I would say right now I'm working on a book. Uh, so a big fear that I've had over the last year or two is do I have enough to say? And I compare myself to, yeah, I look up like to your Anthony Annarinos and your Mark Hunters and the Jeff Gittimers of the world and Andy Paul's got a bunch of books, all these guys. And I'm like, can I put out something like what they've put out? It's a comparison, you know, kind of thing. So that was a really big fear of mine that as I'm writing this book, I still, I still feel that, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of confidence for me and that, you know, you, you mentioned reframing for me. I think that's been really helpful to reframe the purpose of doing this. The purpose is to put something out there that is really helpful for a sales rep to help them with outbound. The purpose is not, for me to feel a certain way about what I'm doing necessarily. Like I already know how to do this extremely well. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm very good at teaching this stuff, very good at helping other people get good results with it. And that's exactly what the purpose of the book is for. So it doesn't really matter how I feel or what I compare myself to, you know, but um, that's kind of a big thing for me. It's just, like you said, pushing through it and just getting comfortable with the fact that I'm, 
going to have imposter syndrome. And the most successful people that I talk to have imposter syndrome, like they doubt themselves. And that's a normal thing. So that's one of many things, Howard. Which like, I could embellish more, but that's, that's something I'm working through right now. Well, and, and it's interesting, right? It's amazing how we distort the facts of our life. So yeah. how many podcasts have you done roughly? Um, God, I think we're into what, 150, 160, 170 episodes or something like that here. And then I've been interviewed on, you know, four or five dozen, yeah. you know, podcasts. And I imagine that every one of those podcasts, you learn something, right? Oh, sure. Yep. And, and you've been doing training for a while. Yep. Yeah. So you probably have a lot to to teach. You probably have a lot of information, may yep. not be the same as Anthony or Andy Paul, or, but boy, you have a lot of experience and you've had some pretty amazing guests. How much do you need to put into a book, really? I mean, you can't share all your experience from all of that. You have plenty to share, right? But telling yep. yourself, I don't have as much as this, when we judge our inside by how someone else looks, we're never going to measure up. Right, because you have yeah. the fear and this and that. And, hey, their life looks perfect. Like the, the book that they put out is great. Well, we're not going to measure up. And, and that's that I'm being a fraud, right? I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm that sort of stuff. And really say, wait a minute, let's look at my life. Let's look at the facts and then push through it anyway. That is so critical. And that's the stuff that every sales rep needs to wake up every morning, What's the three goals they have on their list? What do they need to accomplish? Who do they need to talk to? They know the fear is going to be there. Do it anyway. Yeah, I love that. I want to ask you about another topic I was thinking about, attachment styles. Have you done much? Uh, I'm sure you've thought about it a lot, but do you feel like there's any connection with our attachment style and the relationship that we had like with our parents growing up and how we interact with prospects, say when someone ghosts us or when we're not getting the answer that we want and how anxious we might be about that or with some people, how avoidant they might be and like kind of shutting off and uh, disappearing when someone rejects them, that kind of stuff. Have you seen any connection with that or do you, do you see well, anything like that? Well, yeah, you're going deep, man. So, um, my, my master's thesis was actually on Bowlby attachment theory. So yes, oh, cool. critically important yeah. how we attach and lack of attachment and what is healthy attachment versus unhealthy attachment. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think a lot of yes. So the answer is yes. How deep we need to go as it relates to attachment theory um, is definitely the advanced course, right? So we talk about like, how do we get started? Like most, yeah. most sales leaders ability to go all the way back to how they attached. And actually, I think it's super helpful if your parents are still alive to have those conversations with them. What was it like? How did they attach to me as opposed to my brothers or sisters? How did I attach to strangers? What was I afraid of? What happens when I was left that first time at school? What was it like when I was left in the crib? Understanding that sort of stuff is fascinating. It's probably far too deep for your initial exploration into discovery and who you are, how you attach to people. Yeah. But yes, all of our background and where we came from, I believe impacts who we are, whether or not I need to do that level of work to actually push through fear and to embrace sort of the new narrative of who I am and where I need to go and what fuels me both in a positive way and in a negative way, I think is, you know, it's right there at the surface. We all can relate to those fears. Yeah. And for someone, because we're kind of bringing up some a topic maybe that people are unfamiliar with, do you mind giving just a quick primer on like what attachment theory is, just the general kind of idea, just so people know, and you probably exp can explain it way better than I can. Yeah. I mean, keep it very, very high level. It's how yeah. we attached or did not attach to our parents. What was that primary caregiver available when we were crying, when we were hungry, when we were thirsty? How How did we connect with that person? Did we have eye contact? All of that attachment impacts, the theory is impacts how we attach to other people. Do we have healthy bonds? 
Are we able to deal with separation? Um, those sort of things. Yeah, it's a really fascinating topic if someone's listening and wants to kind of get a deeper dive into who you are. Um, the next thing I want to talk to you about is there's a general, I think, just across all salespeople that I've seen, but particularly with outbound, when I teach this, something that's really hard to get people to wrap their head around is that, you know, uh, I've heard this term conversational narcissism that I think is really funny. I call it prospecting narcissism. And it's just like focus to tend to shift the conversation into us. It's the tendency to, when I reach out to Howard, I need to tell him about what I do and my products and my services and how I can help. And this really just extreme inward focus with no curiosity really at all <laughs> about the other person or what they're going through. Um, how do you, how would you get, cause, cause I find that this happens a lot in people's personal lives too, just a lack of genuine curiosity in other people when they're talking to them. Um, how do you think about that and you know, making steps towards like having just a more outward focus and not being so focused on yourself for someone that maybe kind of struggles with that? Yeah, great question. And it's, there's a lot to unpack there. So there is yeah. different sorts of inwardness and, and focus around, well, a narcissism, right? And I think they're for a new rep where they're trying so hard to learn their product, the value, trying to understand maybe the ecosystem, trying to understand uh, business acumen, right? Like what, 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 what does this person's business even do? What are the market or unit economics of business? How can I actually be helpful? There's a lot to learn. And I think a lot of reps, um, unfortunately, don't get the training they need both on their product, the sales process, what coaching is, what their customers are really looking for, how the product actually solves problems. And so they sort of jump into the script that they know. It's like, boom, 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 I do this. I'm from this company. We do X, Y, and Z. We have these clients. Are you interested in what I have? Well, no, but very cool that you just wasted two and a half minutes of my time. There, there is also those folks that are just very narcissistic, right? No matter what, it's about them. Constantly, it's about them, it's about them, it's about them. I think as leaders, as sales leaders, I know that one of the things that we hire for, and it's literally at the top of the list, is curiosity. We're hiring for people who are just thirsty to grow, to learn, to understand about others, to solve problems. If, if, you, if you're not hiring for that, if you're not that, no problem, that's great, but you're probably in the wrong profession. If you're an intellectually curious person, if you like to solve problems, if you love understanding things about others, sales is made for you because that's what you're doing. You're helping solve problems, but you need to understand what the problem is. You need to understand what fuels that other person because buyers are not just buying for their company and trying to solve a business problem. They're also trying to solve a personal problem. They're, what is going to make them feel better? Why are they going to emotionally attach to what you offer? How is what you're selling gonna make them a better person, a better version of themselves? How is what you're selling hopefully going to offer them more time to be with their families or buy that thing they always wanted or envision themselves in a different way? You need to be able to connect with that as well as, oh, by the way, we're going to reduce your ad spend or we're going to increase productivity or whatever it may be. You also want to connect with that individual, but you have to be curious, right? A great interviewer, right? Your ability to ask great questions of your podcast host is because you're hungry and curious to learn and grow. Th those same qualities are required for salespeople. And quite frankly, I think they're required for a lot of people in business. Yeah, no, I love that. Just being an, an executive yourself, what have you responded well to? Because I think that uh, the reason I ask that is that a lot of the you know, people that I work with, they haven't been in a leadership role you know, before. 
and so they've never been in the seat of the buyer. Mm-hmm. And what I'm always trying to get them to do is think more like the buyer, you know, put yourself in their shoes, which is an easy thing to say, but they've never been in the shoes before. You know, is there, is there anything you can share or lend in terms of you as an executive yourself? Is there anything that you particularly respond well to or, or don't respond well to in terms of how people try to sell to you? Yeah. And by the way, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about that because obviously a big part of what we're doing is studying how yeah. people do outreach. We're studying how people communicate. We're studying what they do in emails at work or SMS or phone calls or Zoom meetings. We have over a hundred million hours of recorded conversations that we're studying to figure out what's work working and what doesn't, and then applying that knowledge to outcomes, right? And then studying that and prescribing that for sales teams and leaders. So I pull back from that and I think about all of the inbound that I get and have gotten over the years. I love creative people. I love when something stands out as different. It's not that same pitch. It's not the exact same thing. It's personalized to me. It's thoughtful. Um, It invokes my thinking. It's forced me to stop for a moment, no matter how busy, busy I am, no matter how much I have going on. This guy caught my attention. This woman caught my attention. I want to focus for a moment because they have something interesting to say or offer. So be interesting, be inquisitive, be unique. Those are the things that stand out for me. If it's the same thing, the whole idea of prospecting at scale, it it doesn't make sense. Like, yes, I get that you want to hit the most amount of people and it's a numbers game, but eventually you want to actually add value and you want to be able to make that connection. So what is it? What are the questions that are going to be important? What are the statements that are going to cause me to think and pause for a second. Yeah, this guy gets it. This woman has thought about me and my position and what could be helpful. When you say value, what are, do you have any examples of stuff that has been valuable to you? I think that there's a lot of, I don't think that a lot of salespeople know what value actually is. <laughs> when you're, when you're prospecting to someone, at least like, do you have an example of like what, what would you consider valuable from a salesperson if they, in a cold email or an insight on a cold call or whatever it might be, what would you consider valuable? Yeah. Let's say I, I mean, I'm just flying off the cuff here, but let's say I'm selling to, uh, to podcast hosts and I want to get your attention because, you know, maybe I have a service that, that, that's helpful for you. I don't know if it's recording equipment or whatever it may be, maybe providing you a list of, the top 25 podcast hosts and you know how they've grown over the years or you know maybe it's a it's a picture of each of their you know uh, covers on 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 apple or something like that like something that's going to be unique and different that adds value immediately to our conversation it's a talking point it's specific to me and what i do that to me is adding value if it's just, hey, I got something I want to talk to you about and I do X, Y, and Z, it's less valuable. Lead in with value and helping and interesting. Is, uh, and again, I'm just using something off the cuff, but I think you would respond better if you receive something about why people are successful. What do they do different? What is, what is their, you know, their graphics look like? That sort of thing. Yeah. So I think you mentioned something really important there. You said immediately actionable. So it's something that you could look at and be like, oh, ding, 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 light bulb. Maybe I share this with someone on my team. Mm-hmm. It's not some 30 page white paper. No, that's <laughs> no, you know? no. I mean, I'm a big fan of little snippets, right? So if I snip, a, yeah. if you say something that's incredibly valuable in this podcast and I could snippet that and it's relevant yeah. to what somebody else's problem. So if I see someone on LinkedIn and they're complaining yeah. that their reps are fearful of making calls or that sort of thing, why not take the 30 second snippet from this, send that to them and say, hey, you should be checking out Jason's Blissful Prospecting podcast because he has a lot to say in helping you grow. I don't know whether or not I can sell him my product or service, but I'm certainly being helpful in that moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Okay, so 
the value piece, is there, is there anything else around when you said stuff that really sit, makes you sit and think that you've gotten from sales reps, is it like a challenging of your perspective almost, or a status quo kind of thing where it's like, Hey, people have been doing it this way for a long time. And here's kind of a different way of thinking about solving this problem. Like what kind of stuff has stuck out to you in terms of, you know, that, that type of thing? Is it just interesting and different or does it challenge you in some sort of way? Anything you can share about that? Yeah, I think you're, you're leading the witness here. Absolutely. Because yes, it, it needs to be interesting and it needs to be challenging. I think about, there's a lot of talk today about diversity and inclusion, right? Why is diversity? And look, we have a lot of work to do. I think every company has a lot of work to do. Yep. Why is diversity and inclusion so important? I believe diversity and inclusion is important. One, because you want to make sure that people are included and, 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 but most importantly, why you see successful companies have great diversity and inclusion programs. It's because the diversity of thought, it's a different perspective. If I surround myself with the same information and the same people, all I'm doing is validating my thesis. If I bring people in who offer a different perspective, that is where the power is. That is companies that grow disproportionate to their peers have that diversity, have that diversity of thought, have that inclusion. When you're talking about prospecting and someone challenging me, that is valuable, right? Provide a different perspective. Don't give me the same regurgitated stuff. Challenge the way I'm thinking. Challenge the way my team is thinking. Offer me a different perspective. That is hugely valuable. Yeah. That narrative is kind of interesting to, to come up with because, oh man, it could be tough as a rep if your company doesn't have a specific narrative. There's so many kind of boilerplate type of companies that don't really come in with a perspective on how you should do things. Like uh, you just shared today a perspective that you have where it's, you know, prospecting is not a murder by numbers game. Like you need to differentiate yourself. You need to really stick out. That's a perspective because there's a lot of people that don't believe that perspective. There's a lot of people that believe you should just attack this problem with volume. You know, having that perspective, I think, is really important as a rep. You know, to really think about what are you trying to get them to think differently, or how are you trying to get them to think differently. Let me just um, address that, Jason, because I think it's important. Sure. Right? You go back ten years ago, there wasn't much sales engagement, right? So you didn't have the ability to prospect at scale per se, because engagement software, and and we're one of them, is out there. Right. And, and because we're all blasting the same people, right. Eventually you're going to get to a point where everybody has this stuff and everybody is blasting. Right. So yes, it's a numbers game, no doubt about it, but how do I differentiate from the other 50 people that are using the same engagement software and blasting me the same type of messages that we read on LinkedIn that you should be sending. You're going to hit that critical mass where you got to stand out. So yes, it's a numbers game, but if everybody's sending a thousand emails and a thousand SMS and a thousand LinkedIn in, in contact, how do you differentiate? We have to not just play the numbers game. We have to add value. We have to be unique. We have to involve a different perspective. Otherwise, you're not going to exceed. You're just going to be status quo. Yeah. I think this is a good segue into the last thing I wanted to kind of pick your brain on is conversational intelligence. You mentioned something around a hundred million hours or something crazy like that. I feel like we're just barely skimming the surface of the potential of conversational intelligence, but what do you, what do you see as the future yeah. of conversational intelligence? Where do you see this thing going? Yeah. So we've been recording phone calls since 2015 and transcribing them. And so we were, we didn't get into the sort of Zoom uh, WebEx um, process late. We were a bit late to that part of the game, but we were recording prospecting calls and sales calls and support calls for a long, long time. Conversations have always been this sort of untapped gold mine of data. And we think about conversations now as 
they're the interaction between any frontline individual within your organization and your customers or prospects. And if you mine that data, just like you'd mine any third-party data or any first-party data, and you take that data and you run statistical analysis against it, and you attempt to pattern recognize and look at the outcomes of that data, you can apply it to anything. So our product team uses our conversations to listen to what our prospects are asking for. If we continue to see more people ask for a certain product, then we that it then hits our roadmap in terms of things that we should be developing. Our marketing team is listening to the language, not only that our sales reps are saying, but the language that the prospects are using, because we want to incorporate that in our messaging. Right? We're also looking at what we say and what we don't say that influences outcomes. Does it change the sentiment of the caller? Does it create better rapport or trust? Do we disposition the calls in a positive way? Has there been a meeting set? Was there a next step taken, a next action? We look at all of that data. And then we look at how managers are training the reps and what they're saying or not saying. And we combine all of that. This is the gold mine. But let's not get overly excited about conversational intelligence. Without all of the third-party data, third data, the intent data, the marketing data, the sequence and cadence data, the SMS data, and the email data, and stringing all of those pieces together and looking at a variety of variables and testing and measuring what in fact made the change in behavior and led to that outcome, it's just another data source. So if it's sitting over here and it's not part of your whole stack and you're not running the type of statistics and analysis against it, and you're overgeneralizing, if you speak at this rate to your prospect, then you'll have better outcomes. No, but if I speak to a VP at a tech company that's at this stage of an opportunity and they've they've downloaded this piece of content and I use this specific language, yes, then it will impact it. But I think what we're unfortunately falling almost drunk to is this overgeneralization that if you just do this, then you'll have a better outcome. And that's not the case. It needs to be contextual. What our technology actually does is we're listening in real time and providing guidance to the rep as they're actually talking on the phone or in Zoom meetings. And that's based on hundreds of millions of other transactions. So it's not generalized suggestions. It's specific to that rep, to that specific prospect, to that particular part of an opportunity. That's what we need to be doing. Because if we overgeneralize, what's going to happen is people are going to stop trusting the data. Hey, you said if I just do this, this, and this, we can be very forgiving of human beings. I can forgive you if you fail me. But if my data fails me and makes the wrong suggestion, has me contact the wrong customer or do the wrong thing, we're not as forgiving of our machines. And that's really important. Yeah. God, there's so much there. I, I think that there's this, you know, kind of thinking that conversational intelligence will be the diet pill. It'll be the cheat code that we, that we no longer have to work for when in reality it's giving you stuff that helps you sharpen up your workout routine based on your specific body type and your goals. And then what you, you nailed it. That's it. You still got to do the work though. Yes, <laughs> you know? you got to do the work, but you now have coaching around this thing, which is so powerful. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I won't mention the specific company that puts out content like this, but I'm glad you addressed it because I'm like, just putting out a boilerplate thing that says, say these three lines in a cold call, right. this works and this doesn't. I mean, it's so contextual. Like you said to, am I talking to an above the line, you know, executive versus a user of the product? I see a lot of varying things in cold calling, for example, you know, the kind of general advice is don't ask someone how they're doing at the beginning of a call, which I think it's like fair, like that's okay. But I have a client that calls people in the South and it's, it you feels better like ask. That's to right. not say that. It's you rude. know what I mean? So it's, it's so contextual. You nailed it. You have it. Everything is about context, situational awareness. The reason there's an all-star second baseman is because he's done the same repetitions over and over again. He knows exactly what to do when the ball's hit towards him and there's someone yeah. on first base. It's that repetition. It's the understanding of the exact situation. If we overgeneralize, we're going to fail people. Yeah. I love your point too, around 
you know, gathering the data is one thing because there's a lot of ways to record calls. Yeah. But if you can't do anything with that data and look at, you know, kind of the macro trends across the data, it's, it's really not that useful. Yeah. You know, so it sounds like that's kind of the future of this. Like, how can we tie things together and get much, you know, more, uh, how can we get smarter about the recommendations that we're making based on stuff that's actually happening, making more sense of the data that we're, that we're capturing? I'd love to give you an example, Jason. So we have, we were studying interruptions when people interrupt others during conversations. And one of the things that basic technology, recording technology can do now is it can tell you if you are a interrupter, right? And we've always heard that interrupting people is bad. You shouldn't interrupt people when they're talking. Yeah. Now take Zoom away for a moment and you and I are on a phone call, right? And I'm talking to you and I'm maybe on a 20, 30 second tirade about something. Well, if you and I are on Zoom, I just see right now you're shaking your head because you're agreeing with me. That's a nonverbal cue that is for me comforting because it means that you're understanding or you're connected to what I'm saying, right? You're giving me a shake. I get it. You're looking at me, you're connected. Now on the phone, you're not doing that or you could be doing, but I don't know. So what do you do instead? You might say, uh-huh, yep, uh-huh, yep. I get it, uh-huh, agree totally, yes. All of those are back channel interruptions. Now, if I use basic conversation intelligence, it's going to tell me that Jason is interrupting a lot. Well, no, not at all. Jason's actually connecting and building rapport by giving me those nonverbal cues that he understands me and we're connecting. But now we had to build this metric called back channel interruptions that in fact is a validating metric so that we weren't just looking at interruptions and speaking, we're talking over one another, but what type of talk are we interrupting with? And measuring that. Now, this is the problem. If we overgeneralize, we're saying you're doing a horrible job. You got to stop interrupting. When in fact, you're my best connector. You're building rapport better than anybody else. And now I'm telling you not to do it. It's a problem. Yeah. Oh, man, that's such a good example of something that needs to be so much more specific and nuanced, you know, yeah. than, than a lot of the data. Yeah, I could talk to you for another two hours about this stuff. But uh... <laughs> me too. It's fun. I've had a great time. I appreciate it. <laughs> Um, so before you take off, where can people go to connect with you, learn more about what your company is up to, all that kind of good stuff? Yeah, definitely go to revenue.io. You can learn a lot about us. We were Ring DNA previously. We rebranded to revenue.io. You can find me on LinkedIn. So it's Howard Brown on LinkedIn. Or you can find me on Twitter as well, Howard Brown.